listening to the Adam and Kyle podcast, where we hope to ignite inspiration through seeking the extraordinary and the ordinary. We will bring you episodes where we will let you in on our decades-long journey as friends and have conversations with guests about their passions, learning through lived experiences, and what challenges and excites them. Also, listen for bonus episodes that revolve around our shared love for music as we take a deep dive into our favorite bands, albums, and what we're spinning. Thanks for hanging out with us. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Adam and Kyle podcast. We're your hosts, Adam and Kyle. On today's episode, we are welcoming another very special guest onto the show that I'm really excited about. He was recognized as one of Vancouver's leading chefs when he was awarded Chef of the Year at the 2009 Vancouver Magazine Restaurant Awards. He also had the opportunity to work as the chef de partie under world-renowned chef Thomas Keller at the French Laundry in Northern California. And he has also opened some award-winning restaurants in Vancouver, such as Fuel, Campagnolo, Campagnolo Roma, and Campagnolo Upstairs. He's the host of the Mise en Place podcast with the Chef's Table Society of BC. So please welcome onto our show, Robert Belcham. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Am I saying your last name right? Yep. Belcham. Yeah, that's correct. Belcham. Perfect. Perfect. Um, So you're based out of Vancouver at the moment, correct? That's right. I've been here for the last uh, 18, 19 years. Okay. Um, wow. A long time. Yeah, I came. Uh, my now ex-wife and I moved back to back to Vancouver, back to Vancouver, uh, when my wife became pregnant, and uh, my ex-wife became pregnant with my son, and we came back to be closer to the family and and uh, you know try to continue on uh, you know growing a family here in Vancouver in in, in BC where she was. Uh, she was from, and my family is originally from British Columbia, even though I was born and raised in Alberta. So, yeah. Nice. Whereabouts in Alberta were you raised? So I was born in Edmonton, but I grew up in northern Alberta, a small town called Peace River. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, it's very good small. hunting up there. Great hunting up there. <laughs> lots of moose. Yeah. Lots of deer. Lots of partridge. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was an interesting, uh, uh, interesting place to grow up. You don't, you don't do much except... You know, as a as a teenager, anyway, you get in a lot of trouble. You drink too much, and you right. get into things you shouldn't be doing at at, at such an age, at such a young age. But uh, I would I've met some of the best people I know in my uh, have ever known in my life up there, and they're still my bestest of friends. So um, right. I wouldn't, uh, you know, you wouldn't go anywhere else. I wouldn't uh, change it for the for anything. Let's put it that way. No, for sure, that sounds like a win. Yeah. We're we're actually planning a um a hunting trip. Hopefully for next year we're thinking about doing Peace River for moose, but uh, it's a fair bit of a drive from Calgary where I'm based, so we're trying to decide if yeah. it's worth going up there. Yeah, seven that's a, like a seven hour trip. Yeah, it's a nice uh it's it's it it's been a long time since I haven't been back to Peace River since nineteen ninety six, so uh maybe even l- later than that, uh or hmm. longer than that. So I don't even know what the hunting is like up there anymore. Uh, it used to be great. I don't know if it still is, but can't be that hard is to that, find is, it, that, is that something that you were into or are still into, Robert? Is uh, like hunting and stuff like that? Unfortunately, no. I I never really got into it that much. I mean, I fished tons as a child, um, but my mm-hmm. my all over British Columbia and all over Alberta, fly fished and 
stream fished and trolled and stuff all over the place, but I never really got into hunting because my, my dad was never uh, into guns. So we never really, okay. we never really did it. Um, it's something that I would, now that I have a little bit more time, I have a lot of friends who hunt and it's something that I'd like to get into, but it's sort of uh, one of those things you sort of have to go all in or doing it half-assed just doesn't really work that well. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're going into kind of remote places, if you do it half-assed, that's how you freeze. And yeah, don't, exactly. Don't do very yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right on. Um, okay. So we're going to get into kind of the meat of our conversation here a bit today. So first of all, Robert, again, thank you for jumping on and joining us today. It was kind of, it was kind of last minute, um, just kind of stemmed from a quick little Instagram message I sent you because of yeah. something you posted, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but I wanted to start with a little bit of your, your background. So you were, you opened uh, Campagnolo in Vancouver uh, in yeah. 2000. 10, 10 was it or eight no two, 2007, oh, 2007. Um, well, late, very late in 2007 i think it was this, a december opening and yeah. um we closed it uh last or the right when covid started and we decided not to reopen it um mm -hmm. because of covid so um but i've had lots of other restaurants uh i have two other restaurants right now um popina and popina cantina they're both on Granville Island. If people, your listeners know where Granville Island is in, in situation or situated in Vancouver. Um, okay. and, um, I have other businesses as well. And, uh, but yeah, cooking has been my main thing for the last 25, 26 years. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Campagnolo, my wife and I had been there a couple of times and oh, wow. it was That's just, great. it was just a really incredible like dining experience and like especially for like for casual italian um yeah we we really really enjoyed it there so um, I just yeah i mean because it was i appreciate that i mean campanula was a very interesting thing it was a restaurant it was the first of its kind in vancouver we tried mm -hmm. to do something that was regionally specific to northern italy specifically Reggio Emilia and and uh, modena and, uh, and I'm not an Italian, I'm not an Italian trained chef, um, but it was, uh, but uh, Italian food is something that we obviously, everybody loves. So mm -hmm. there's a fire truck outside. Um, but the, um, we had fuel restaurant, um, before we opened up Campagnolo and it was more of a fine dining restaurant and we wanted to, uh, do something that was a bit more for everybody and that. You could dine yeah. at multiple times a week and then not break the bank and something that was a little bit more fun to do. So, yeah. Great. And then, um, cause I was going to ask if there was, uh, where kind of like the inspiration to start Italian came from, did you, <laughs> yeah. like, did you, tra did you travel to Italy or was it just something that you were like, we know everyone likes this, let's do it and do it well. Well, that, well, that was basically it. It's like, we were trying to, you know, we, we had fuel as a fine dining place. It was, it was very successful. Um, but it was, it was one of those things where it was like, you, you went there for your anniversary or you went there for a birthday party or it was mm -hmm. or first date or something like that. It was a special occasion kind of place. Cause it was the check average was, uh, you know, on the higher side. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to open something that we could, you know, be super proud of. And, and I, that I could have the, the same sort of philosophy behind the food you know, eating local and eating in season and doing everything from scratch. 
um, but in a much more casual atmosphere at a much mm-hmm. lower price point. And we, we tossed around a bunch of ideas and Itali- we kept on coming back to Italian because it was super easy for people to understand. We're going for Italian food. We're going for pasta. We're going to have some pizza as opposed to we're going for, you know, um, you know, Northwest sort of contemporary food. Like, like it doesn't really roll off the tongue and it's, it's sort of ambiguous in its style. So it was very easy for people to understand Italian. So that's why we yeah. went with that. And, and I love, and I love Italy and I love the Italian food and I love the culture and the, the fact that, the, you know, everybody, um, the whole, all of the society in Italy and, and Italians, it's all about food and it's all about dining and it's all about drinking some wine and, and having a convivial table. And, um, and I love that aesthetic and I love that idea of, you know, living for a great meal, you know, and every Italian I've ever met is super opinionated about the best bolognese and the best pizza and the best whatever. And that's uh-huh. the, and I, and I love that aspect of it. It's just like, you know, people just, if you want to have the best bolognese, you have to have my grandma's kind of idea. Like that's, right. that's such a, that's such a cool thing. I didn't have that in my family and mm-hmm. I think it's pretty, pretty unique uh, to Italy. I actually recently watched a YouTube video about Bolognese sauce and uh, the right ways to make it and the wrong ways to make it. They basically picked apart YouTube stars, Bolognese sauces and figured out which <laughs> ones were accurate and which ones weren't like uh, I can't remember. Someone put like a vegetable in it, like some, ve- I was like a carrot or something. I don't remember. I'm not, I'm not a chef myself, but uh, yeah. basically they ripped them apart. They're like, as soon as you put this vegetable in it, it's no longer Bolognese. And it was, it was really yeah. funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, that, absolutely. I mean, I, I, that happened to me many, many times, like doing a recipe, say on TV or, or, or in a cookbook or in a, in a magazine or something like that. The comments you would get is like, that's not true, Tagliatelli, or that's not true, Bolognese, <laughs> or whatever. And it's just like, that's, I love the passion that the, that the Italians have for, you know, because there's such tradition towards dishes. You change one little ingredient and it's no longer. Yeah bolognese or it's no longer carbonara or, or whatever. And that's, to me, that's super cool. And, and, you know, being here in Canada and not being Italian and not trying to be authentic Italian, I was just like, I could be authentic if I wanted to, or I could just throw caution to the wind and just cook how I wanted to. And that's basically what we did at Campanile. We just, the number one thing was just for it to be unbelievably delicious. And mm-hmm. I think we accomplished, I hope we accomplished that. I think we did. I think you definitely did. Because one <laughs> one thing I just wanted to quickly touch on was that, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that a dish that came out of Campagnolo that's arguably maybe a dish that you're kind of famous for in Vancouver is your spaghetti carbonara. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those, that was actually the dish that started uh, Campagnolo. It was one of the big reasons why we decided to do Italian. Um, Mm-hmm. At Fuel Restaurant, we had a, one of my right-hand guys. His name is Ted Anderson, an unbelievable chef in his own right and unbelievable cook. And he had trained under an Italian chef, and he learned how to make uh, spaghetti carbonara. And uh, it, it was something that I always asked him to make, you know, for staff meal or, you know, as a special or something like that, because it was just so unbelievably delicious and so simple. And yeah. um, it was what launched... It was what launched or helped launch Campagnolo, that idea. And then it eventually um, is what really launched Campagnolo Roma, the second Italian restaurant that we opened. 
mm-hmm. and where we spe- tried to specialize more in Italian, uh, sorry, in uh, Roman dishes uh, as opposed to just Northern Italian dishes. Um, that's what the, the other really cool thing about Italy is that every region and every city has their own specialties that um, are very unique and that people, especially in North America, mm-hmm. don't really know about. And spaghetti carbonara or pasta carbonara from Rome is 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 ubiquitous. It's uh, and it's absolutely bloody delicious. You know, it's unreal. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorites for sure. Yeah. And if and if anyone out there, I don't know if you've watched this, Robert, but if anyone out there is interested in Italian cuisine, um, Stanley Tucci just did a a little like series on yeah. CNN. He did. Yeah, and it's a, it's amazing. It's incredible. So if yeah. you're into well, if you're into just cooking in general or even if you're not it's super entertaining and a lot of cool information in there and then we'll just also make you starving for all past yeah exactly and and stanley (laughs) tucci being one of the you know stars of one of the greatest food films of all time with big night i don't know if you've seen it or not but it's you haven't you definitely you definitely need to watch so Robert, you talk about these uh, these two restaurants, Cabaniolo and Cabaniolo Roma, uh, with great fondness. And like, obviously, the pandemic's been really tough on everyone. Yes. Um, and I really can't imagine, um, Adam, for me that uh, you had to close it. And you mentioned it as well, but I can't imagine how hard that decision would have been because, like, obviously, they're your your brainchilds, and and you you sound like you say very very fond of them. Um, what uh, can you like walk us through? what the decision process was like and what factors went into making the call to close versus just like versus shutting down and reopening at the end of the pandemic. Right. And that's a very good question. And so just to backtrack a a bit, I closed Campagnolo Roma in uh, the fall of 2018. Um, It was Mm -hmm. time for the restaurant. I've been in the restaurant business for a long time. Restaurants have a shelf life, just like everything else. Oh, okay. And it was, it was time for Campagnolo to, or for Roma to be done. It had done a, a great job uh, for a long time. We had a lot of really great cooks and chefs and front of the house people through it. A lot of really great customers and, you know, we made good money. It was, it was a great business, but it was time for it, it to be over with. Um, so we closed mm-hmm. out a couple years ago or three years ago now, I guess. And with Campagnolo, it, uh, the main restaurant on main street here in Vancouver, that was, it, to close it was a very easy decision. I'll never like I'll never forget it till the day I die. It's like hmm. I wo- I was in Toronto. I happened to be in Toronto doing a, a an event, and I woke up the Saturday morning. It was like March twelfth or thirteenth, I think, if I remember right, because it was a couple of days after my birthday. I had I, I had uh, my sister lives in Toronto, and we, we were going to celebrate our birthday together. I'm a twin, and so this is getting convoluted, but. It's, um, I woke up on the Saturday morning. I read, I read the news like I do every morning and 400 people had died in Italy and overnight Mm -hmm. because of COVID. And, and I was like, and nobody knew what was really going on. And looking back, it was, it's, it's still people really don't know what's going on with it, Mm -hmm. but we didn't know if we were going to go into the zombie apocalypse or if it was like, if people were, or were going to start dying like crazy or, or what. And and I was just like, I was absolutely shocked that for that, that many people had died because of this, this virus over in one night, it just blew my mind. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And it with, and with no other information. And then, so we started seeing other restaurants 
especially in the States, Seattle, because we're so close, they were starting to close. Um, and I, I, I made the call. I called my, my business partner, Tim Pittman, and I said to him, 400 people died overnight. I don't want the, our number one thing is always staff. And I was like, I do not want to put our staff in jeopardy for a few bucks. It, it's like nobody, nobody's life is worth, you know, a, a, you know, running a restaurant for a night. It doesn't make sense to me. So Definitely. I was like, we got to close and, um, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just tell everybody we're going to, we're going to open up in a couple of weeks or when we get some more information and, and, and figure it out, but we're going to close this Sunday. And then that's, and that ended up being the last service. That was the last time wow. that we had Campanillo and, it was this, you know, it was, it was always the constant, we all were going through it in, in some way or another, but it was the constant, how do we make sure people are safe, customers are safe, and how do we make money um, mm -hmm. to keep the business afloat and going? And we kept on trying to figure out the math. We were very lucky in that we had 10 years of data or 11 years of data of, of past sales of how things went throughout the year, day by day, month by month, week by week. And so we really knew exactly what our sales had to be, what they needed to be, um, and you know, what the potentials were. And we just, we couldn't see it coming out of the red. Um, it was just, it was, it was simple mathematics for us. And, you know, it's unbelievably stressful, uh, and unbelievably, um, disheartening when you, when you're trying to make decisions on people's on your employees behalf, but their number one thing is you want to keep them safe because we're not getting the greatest information from the government. And then at the same right. time, how do you keep this business afloat so that you, you can have them come back? And, um, it was, it was a, a very, very difficult roller coaster of, of, uh, of a year, like spring and into summer. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they opened it up again, uh, so then like a couple days after, so we closed, that was in March, a couple days later, the government made it mandated that all restaurants have to close. And then it, that happened, that spread across the whole country mm -hmm. and then pretty much the world. And then we were allowed to open again in May and we, we tried to do the math again and, and we were still, still talking, thinking about people's, um, safety and we decided not to open. And we said, you know what? Uh, we're not going to do it just for a few bucks and um, because we didn't have enough information. And, right. and by that time, everybody had been laid off. And uh, by that time, everybody had CERB. And um, our, mm -hmm. our, so it, people were, were able to make money and they were able to live and stuff. And so we just decided because safety was always number our number one concern. Um, and we were able to make the restaurant like, cause we cut staff and we cut all of, we were able to figure out how to, 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 to keep the, keep the restaurant, but not run the restaurant, I guess is the best way to put it. Right. Right. And then, and then, you know, it just, we were just like the ownership was, cause it's not just me who owned it. And then it's not just Tim. So the ownership was like, well, why don't we just call it a day? We've been doing it for 12 years. Um, they wanted the other, other ownership was like, let's get out. We owned the building. Um, which was very rare in the restaurant business. And uh, so we decided to put the building up for sale and we, and we ended up selling it and mm. selling it all. And wow. um, that's, it was very difficult, but at the same time, 
Um, I'm super happy that no one ever got sick at our restaurant. No one ever uh, became ill from our restaurant. And, and we have years of, we have years of, of, to be proud of like so many awards, so many, you know, accolades of every kind um, that we did a really thing, a really cool thing for a long time. And I have nothing but uh, fond memories of it and really, really good memories and friends from the years of all the employees and, and friends that I've made because of it. So it was right. a good thing at the end of the day, mm. but you yeah. know, just like everything, it has a shelf life. Um, unfortunately the shelf life was uh, exacerbated by a pan, a global pandemic, you know, of course, right. which is not, not a unique story, unfortunately, but uh, no. Yeah, no, it sounds like you've got a pretty positive outlook on it while, while it was difficult, like you say, but uh, it seems like it came from a place of, of caring, which is, is really positive as well. And then looking back on the legacy of it, obviously you can mm-hmm. rec- reconcile that uh, the history of that restaurant pretty easily, it seems. Yeah. And, and, I, and looking like hindsight's 2020, as always, looking back, if I would have tried to open this restaurant um, again, the amount of constant stress that I would be under now would be unbelievable. Like I, f- it's hard enough with the re- the other two restaurants that I own, but if I was like a sit down restaurant with, with service staff and, and a full kitchen brigade, uh, like a lot of restaurants are, I feel, you know, I, f- I have a huge amount of empathy for all those restaurant owners and, and chefs who are, are of small independent restaurants trying to make it work because it's unbelievably stressful. I just, I just, I couldn't imagine having to go through that right now. Um, and you, you know, just the idea of at the, at the end of the day, you're just trying to keep people, you know, you're just trying to make food for people and make them happy. And, and this idea of, of throwing in, getting somebody sick, it's just, it's crazy to me. It's hard. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you love something, set it free, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to just quickly ask about, cause you mentioned, um, Popina. Yes. Um, so that is what, what are the plans for that? Is that, is that up and running? So yeah, right yeah. Now? so both, so both Popinas, they, uh, be, so what Popina is, is basically a very fancy concession stand. It's always was built for it, like to go like the Popina uh-huh. canteen is it's like burgers and, uh, French fries and salads and things like that. And Popina cantina is a, a, a small taco stand and both of them were built to be to go. And so they never, we never had to deal with this. We were very easily, we were able to make our service, our, our staff safe because plexiglass masks, face shields yeah. and things like that. So it was never that it was, and we went to like, it was touchless completely um, with payments and things like that. So we made it safe very quickly. So we opened Popina back up back in uh, May and okay. then we actually opened a new Popina Cantina. We opened last August. So during the middle of the pandemic, we ended, we opened up a new restaurant, which was a whole other okay. can of worms. <laughs> is that guess. the one on, is that the one on Johnston that you're talking about? No, those are, no, those are both still on, those are both on, on Gravel Island. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Sorry. On Johnston street. Yes. Yeah, sorry. It is on Johnston street. I just never think of streets when I go into Gravel Island, but yes, they are both on Johnston That's fair. street. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that's good to know that, um, that those are up and running as much as they can be at least. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. They, I mean, 
in Granville Island. And as uh, most people who have been to Vancouver know, Granville Island is one of the largest tourist attractions in Western Canada, if not Canada itself. And because there are no tourists right now, it's very slow there. Um, so we're, you know, we're relying a lot on the, on the goodwill of, of Vancouverites to come to the biggest tourist attraction and have some deep. Right. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's good. Lots of people need to get out and, and uh, experience the city. So it's, it's not, not necessarily a bad thing, but it's definitely slower than it's, it should be. Let's put it that way. Great. Good to hear. Okay. So as I mentioned kind of at the top, um, that this interview came up just out of a, uh, out of a string of Instagram posts that you posted and that caught yeah. the attention of not only myself, but like fellow friends of the industry and even some other chefs in the industry. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, it kind of felt like a, like a painful, heartfelt cry out to anyone that isn't familiar with the industry and everything that goes on behind the scenes to open their eyes and not take for granted the service that like restaurateurs provide to people. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind, I wanted to just read what you said and then... Yep. I uh, wanted to get into the thought process of what 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 was led to you hosting something like that. Okay. Um, yeah, please go ahead. Okay. So you said, I have noticed a huge amount of posts about restaurants looking for staff. A lot of really good chefs and managers desperate for people to work in their establishments. The shitty thing is, we all knew this was going to happen. A huge amount of really good people realized how poorly they have been treated for so very long and decided enough is enough. Low pay, overworked, huge amounts of stress, all for ungrateful customers who complain about the smallest mistake. So here we are. Customers who want to go out, restaurants that need to survive and give the customers what they want. But the most important part is missing, our staff. And until we decide to raise prices and pay a living wage and create a better work environment, we will continue to lose our most precious resource, our staff. So for someone like me, that really hit home. Um, I've been in, I've been in the restaurant industry um, for 16 years now as well. Mm -hmm. And so I can definitely relate to what you were talking about with, stress and the overwork and the underpay and and everything that goes along with that. So I just wanted to say, first of all, um, I appreciate and I know a lot of friends of mine in the industry that that reshared your post appreciate that you put those thoughts out there. And I think you were saying a lot of what we were have all been thinking for so long, but maybe we're too afraid to share it. And I wanted to just know what was the, uh, I don't want to say inspiration, but like what, what was it that caused you to, to post that and make it public? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very complex issue that's been going on in our industry for a very long time, but the catalyst was some really good friends of mine who are very good chefs all over, you know, BC we're just, it was constantly posting on, on social media, not just Instagram, but Facebook and even saw stuff on TikTok and things like that. 
desperate for staff, like absolutely desperate for, for quality people um, to open new restaurants or to just get back to the, get, get the restaurant back up to capacity. And, you know, we're struggling as well at my two restaurants, trying to find staff. We're, we're at five days a week. We, we need to go to seven, but we don't have the staff to do it. We need to expand our hours, mm-hmm. but we don't have the staff to do it. And I just, it, I just was like, there's a reason why this is happening. And it's, it's something that I've been talking about for a long time. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why I uh, started the, the podcast, my, my podcast called, called Mise Plus. Mm-hmm. It's this, it's this, our restaurant, our restaurant uh, industry in North America is completely broken and has been broken for a very long time. And it's been broken from the, the, the whole foundation of it is, is, um, crumbling it's crumbled now especially because of covid and mm-hmm. the 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 customers rarely see it because we're hospitality people and hospitality people are always putting our best face forward and we do not want to share our dirty laundry with the, the general public because that's how we make our money and right. we need to understand as a collective group of industry people that the way the industry and I'm using the industry as a third person here. It's because it's, it's not, it's not like there's owners out there who are like, I'm going to, you know, I want to not, I want to underpay this guy or I want him to make work an extra hour for free, or I want the myriad of other things that, that bad things have happened in our industry. It's not like a, there's, there's not, I really doubt that there's restaurant tourists who are making those conscious decisions. It's that the, the, it's sort of up there. The decisions are made because it's a product of our industry. And this, it's this idea that we can be underpaid, we can be overworked, and we can um, be treated poorly because, you know, we're misfits. We're, you know, you know, not, we didn't, we're not, you know, uh, college graduates and we're not, you know, we're just, we just want to, we just want to make people happy that, that, that we can be taken advantage of. And that's what's happened for so long. And there's no other industry out there that's treated as poorly as the restaurant industry is like when you can't, when, when it's, when you go to a restaurant and, and the restaurant is actually following, um, uh, like the, the right practices on how to pay a, an employee, mm-hmm. it's, you're like, Oh wow. You guys do it the right way. It's like, it's, it's, you're surprised by it. And yeah, not the norm. Yeah, and, and, and exactly. And that's, that's, that's such a huge red flag that no one ever thinks it like nobody, ever, nobody ever talks about it because you don't want to mm-hmm. upset the apple cart kind of idea. And until we, until we decide that, that our best resource and our, our most important resources are the people who are actually the, 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 the people who do the hospitality, the people who greet the guests, the people who, cook the food and treat them accordingly as our best and most important recess resource. Um, our industry is going to be completely fucked. Uh, you know, that's mm. excuse my French, but that's just the way it is. And right. we have to collectively change how we do things and we have to tear down and then rebuild a system that works. So people can get paid properly. So people can work, um, you know, get paid for every hour that they work, that they, they can be treated fairly. They don't have to come to a a workplace that's full of misogyny and racism and bullshit or 
Mm-hmm. They don't have to be berated by customers for the, the, the slightest mistakes um, where they're treated with respect uh, by, by everybody involved. Um, where, and where, the, where that becomes the norm again, or where you can actually make a career out of being an industry professional That's and true. be able to be able to afford a car and a house and to have kids and to feel supported in the, in those decisions. Um, cause right now that doesn't happen. There's a, there's a few questions that kind of fall out of this for me. Um, and for one, I personally didn't realize how broken the system was in North America. Like as far as industries go that are prominent in North America, it seems that you're, you're, you're right in saying that the hospitality industry is the worst, if one of the worst, if not the worst. Um, but like your, your thought here of raising prices in order to pay a living wage, I feel like a ripple effect out of that would be is you'd actually weed out the customers that are the worst customers anyway. So you'd get a better environment for the workers as well. Well, and that's a very good point. Yeah. That's, I think that that would happen. I hope that would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that would happen, but I mean, this is a, the, the thing is, is that, I use this analogy a lot because I, I talk about this a lot is when I came to Vancouver, uh, 19 years ago, I worked at a restaurant called C. It was a very famous seafood restaurant. And I, I came and I started as a sous chef, our salmon that we, the salmon, the salmon dish that we had on our menu was $25. The last year that we were able to serve that salmon at, at uh, Campagnolo restaurant, the same salmon, same fishermen, the same quality of salmon, um, was 2018. And so we're talking like 15 years later, it was 20, instead of $25, it was $26. So it had oh. gone up a dollar. That was what the, the customer base was willing to pay. Um, that doesn't even cover inflation. <laughs> no, it doesn't cover it like that. There isn't a product. There isn't, there is nothing out there in our industry or in any industry where you can continue to, to, to charge such low prices for so long. Um, can you think of it? There's nothing that's, that's, that's only gone up a dollar in 15 years. Like gas has gone up a dollar in 15 years. Like, you know, yeah. I use, I use Converse all, st- all, all stars the other day. Like when I first started buying them, when I was, you know, 20, 20 years old, they were, you know, $25. Now they're $75. Like there's yeah, nothing right. out there that's the same price. Um, but for whatever reason, people think that food should stay the same. So what's been happening is that the, 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 the restaurant industry has been subsidizing the price of the true cost of food at the expense of employees and, and quality ingredients. Right. And, and that needs to change. Um, and until that changes, uh, it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And we see it already. It's like, you know, McDonald's there as much as I, it pains me to say this, they're the most popular restaurant in the world. And, instead of paying people a living wage, they decided to open kiosks mm-hmm. yep. to keep the food prices cheap. Uh, you know, if you're an, if you're an, if you're a customer at McDonald's, if you're not thinking about the people who are behind the counter cooking, um, at all, then you're just a selfish prick. But if you were like, if you were working at, Sorry, Robert, I think we lost you there. Are you still there? Oh boy. Bueller. 
Oh, he's he's really gone. <laughs> yeah. Going under a tunnel. There's so many tunnels yeah. in Vancouver. We need to play the Jeopardy music here. The Adam and Kyle podcast is sponsored by Phoenix Song Productions. Phoenix Song Productions is an AV system provider and integrator specializing in live sound production and recording. Phoenix Song Productions also offers technical consultations, permanent installations, and rentals. Phoenix Song's newest offerings include live streaming consultations, on-site audio and video recording, as well as technical and creative education. Check our website at www.phoenixsongproductions.com for the next education or entertainment event. Follow us on social media. Check the show notes below for links to our website and all of our social pages. Hello. hello? Hey, Robert. Hello. Oh, there. My my uh, Wi-Fi just restarted, and I don't really know why it does. <laughs> oh, it's because you love when that. Don't you love when it does that? Oh man, sorry, sorry about that, guys. No worries. That's okay. Uh, I was on a rant too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you were just talking about um, McDonald's and right. So about the basic, people cooking behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean the the thing is, is that if you go and if you're as a, as an individual, you have a job, you're getting paid. You, you're not getting paid what you think you should get paid. Um, you're not thinking about the person who's working the the grill at McDonald's and thinking should they get paid. Uh, in the same fashion, I get paid. So all you, all you're thinking about is you want your burger to be cheap, so you can then at the end of the day have more money in your own pocket. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you do? Um, like I said earlier, that what restaurants do is that they they cut pricing, or they cut they, they they make it work for them by either cutting the 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 quality of the ingredients that they're using and the pricing the pricing that they're paying for those ingredients and, or they cut labor. Uh, so they actually just get rid of people altogether. Um, or the expectation, especially in when it gets into some more fine dining or white t- or tablecloth sort of dining, uh, as opposed to McDonald's is that, uh, it's at the expense of the people who are working in the, in the establishment themselves by working hours for free, by working, uh, Doing too much, doing too much work in a, in a, in a, in a uh, doing the work of two people when it should be when you're just one person, stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, there's there's a lot of things that need to to change. Um, like I've been in the industry for 25 years. I've I think I've taken a break twice, and it's a mandatory thing. Um, paid vacations. Most restaurant guys don't take vacations. Like cooks don't take vacations unless they quit. It's between jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I mean, there's, there's just, there's countless things like that. So that Instagram post that you would, that you would talk, we're talking about and why this, this whole conversation started, I got so many people messaging me saying, thank you for putting that up. That's just, this is why I left the industry. This is why I can't go back mm-hmm. to the industry. And I'm talking like some of the best cooks and chefs in the country and we're and and managers and sommeliers and stuff, and so we're losing the best hospitality people we have in, in our in our country because we can't they can't make a life out of, of being in the hospitality business. So yeah. our hospitality our hospitality business business is suffering greatly, and mm-hmm. restaurants keep on opening, and the quality of the people has just continued to go 
way down because there's no training and there's no, um, there's no people in it for the reason that I started. It's to be a professional hospitality person. It's to be a chef. It's what I've always wanted to be. Right. And, uh, or and it's not, I don't see it changing uh, unless we collectively change it. So, so Robert, this, uh, this problem that's happening, this snowballing, um, f- kind of ignoring the fast food joints cause they're their own beast, but, obviously there's a lot of chain restaurants around that I feel like are exacerbating, exacerbating, exacerbating the problem. Um, such like a, a Boston pizza, just as a, a universally kind of known one, but yeah. how, how does the, how does the, the fine dining restaurant tackle this problem when a corporate run restaurant like Boston pizza or Montana's, uh, is very unlikely to tackle the problem. And, and the other side of that question is how do you bridge the gap for the consumer, uh, between the low price chain restaurant and the higher priced individual restaurant? You've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly the question. It's, it's an unbelievably complex thing to try to figure out how to change because, you know, just in British Columbia, there's 14,000 restaurants just in British Columbia, there's over a hundred thousand restaurants in Canada. Every one of those restaurants is run a little bit differently by right. different people. And to get, you know, five people getting, getting us just, just us three to agree on the same thing. It's not easy to get a hundred thousand restaurants to agree to do the same thing. It's an impossibility. Almost in, yeah. Almost insurmountable. <laughs> yeah. It's an impossibility. So there've been ideas floated of like, you know, uh, stuff coming down from the government as an example, like, uh, you know, passing laws to, to, uh, to say, let's, one of the problems that we have is, is the tipping, the tipping culture, the tipping model that has to, one of the, one of the lead, one of the main reasons why this is all happening. is like, do we mandate to get the government to mandate to, to abolish tipping as mm-hmm. one example. But the problem is, is that when you, when you put it, things in the hands of the government, things get fucked up no matter what. Like, um, so this idea that to, 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 to rely on the government to make things happen, it's, it's not going to work because they, it's a little bit of a pipe dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's like, whatever they touch, whatever they have, they touch, it always gets screwed up because it, it's, it's, mm-hmm. they try to make it so a, a law so broad and it always ends up screwing some, something up somewhere. Yeah. Sometimes it's their fault. Sometimes it's not. So it has to be a cultural shift. It has to come from the customers. It has to be, it has to come from this as a, as a consumer, you want to know that, you know, the waiter that's, that's, that's serving your table is getting a living wage is getting uh, treated properly in the back of the house. Then you want to make sure that you want to, you want to hold your, the, the, the restaurant to task that there's, that the suppliers are getting treated properly and that the farmers are getting a living wage and down mm-hmm. the road and all the way down the line. Um, and that, so that's why I think it has to be a groundswell of, from, of consumers and it can't really come from restaurateurs because the restaurateurs are going to follow where the money is and where they can keep their businesses afloat. It has to come from the consumer. Um, and, and I don't know another way about it, a way so, to do it. So it almost requires the consumer to stop supporting the big chains and start supporting restaurants that are making this change in um, kind of yeah. first, first in line, I guess the first people to make this change, the consumer needs to switch their habits. 
Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, there are, there are a lot of restaurants who, who are trying to make the changes. This is one of the things we've covered on the podcast. We've talked to a lot of different restaurants across Canada and to the United States who are, you know, who wanted, who are trying to pay a living wage and or abolishing tipping and uh, making it a bit, uh, making it a lot better for the people who are in the, in the restaurants. And what they've noticed, the biggest thing is that everybody there then becomes all their employees are, they, they are, um, then think of themselves as professionals and that's what they want to do mm-hmm. as opposed to, uh, it being a much more transient sort of, uh, job. Uh, so it makes it, it makes it a lot better for the business. It makes the business stronger. Yeah. You'd reduce but a lot of turnover, reduce a, a huge amount of turbo, turnover, which, and then makes the customer experience much better because you, you have totally. a professional who's, who's, who's serving you or cooking for you. And mm-hmm. that, so it, it's, it's in the long, in the long run, it's much better. It, it's in a much better interest for the consumer because they, they'll get a better product at the end of the day. Um, but it's, it's, a it's, it's a, it's a hard, um, thought process for them to go, well, I'll pay more and I'll, and I'll make sure that totally. this restaurant's doing things right. And, but you know, in like 10 years, I'll have like the best service and the best food that I can have because everybody's in the, who's in it now as a professional, it's a hard right. thought process for people to get behind that. So it's conversation. So having it's the, the only way through it is to have as many conversations about it as possible. That's why I'm, I'm, I, I was super happy to talk to you both today and why I, you know, talk to as many people as I can about this. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just at the end of the day, I'm just a cook and I'm just trying to figure out how to make my business is stronger and better mm-hmm. and to make the lives of the people who work for me better. And, mm-hmm. um, some people are s- super stoked and behind it. And then there's lots of people who are just like, it's a pipe dream and it's, um, why upset the apple cart? It doesn't make sense. So, so Robert, I've got two more questions before I stop, uh, hijacking this conversation with questions. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so the first question is, is, um, what actions are you taking with your current ventures to solve this problem? Um, yep. and two, uh, as a consumer, how do I know that I'm supporting a restaurant that, um, is also contributing to solving this problem? Like, is there a certification board or some sort of stamp or something that says this is such and such certified that they're creating a sustainable future for the restaurant business? The, the best certification or the best thing that you can look for in any business is, is um, to find out if they're, if the employer is doing something called living wage. So living wage is a, is a, is a third party, uh, um, uh, organization that is in each province. And basically they figure out what living wage is in your, uh, city and in your province. And then, so they set that number here in, in Vancouver, it's like 1988 an hour. Um, and so everybody who has a certification of being a certified living wage employer pays a minimum of, of 1988 an hour. Um, and mm-hmm. that, that number of 1988 an hour is, it's not arbitrary. Like they actually go and they, they figure out what, you know, what the the median rent is, what it costs for utilities. What, and this is for a two, two adult household with two kids. Um, and that's the minimum amount they need. And this is, but 1988 is like, that's like the barest of minimums. Like that's with no vacation. That's without a car. It's like, yeah. it's like with a bus pass, it's, it's very, very like, um, living, very monk, like <laughs> that's the best way to put it. <laughs> <Eating> so, <ramen. laughs> you, you know, exactly. Um, so 
that's that. So that's the barest minimum. Like you want to make sure that the that the the living wage that they're a living wage employer, and there are a lot of people across the country who are who are who are doing this, um, and trying to do this. And it's uh, restaurants are like it's the thing that makes it much more difficult for restaurants is that the big part of the wage structure with within a restaurant is tips, and I think that we need to abolish tips mainly just for this idea of you need to respect your employees and to leave um, their wage up to an arbitrary schmo in the dining room uh, is unbelievably disrespectful and it, it doesn't promote professionalism. And so I think that's mm. the first, the first thing that needs to happen. Um, so when it comes to living wage tip, most living wage employers will have a tip included model or tip uh, or gratuity included in the pricing or, uh, of uh, you know on the menu so okay that's something to look forward and look for and what was it what was the first what was the first part of your question i'm sorry no um, worries i was just asking what are you doing in your ventures to uh, oh, my ventures, solve yeah. this problem right so what we decided when we first opened popina which was three years ago uh is to basically uh pay higher than pay much more than living wage or sorry much more than um uh minimum wage uh, and then we, what we do is we take all the tips uh, in and then we, um, we tax them uh, and then we put them onto people's checks. Uh, so they end up making on average uh, 23, 24, $25 an hour um, hmm. with the tips included. Um, that way we were able to, people were still able to tip. So we didn't have to, to change people's idea of, of how the, the culture is. And then we were able to give people a better than living wage wage. Yeah. Um, nice. And it, it, it makes the, the people who work for us, you know, they want to keep on continuing to work for us and it makes people happy. Um, but it's still, you know, it's, it's still a work in progress, right? We're just, we're trying to do what sure. we can. We're, we're, we're in this, we're just one small restaurant group who's trying to, you know, be in competition with people who don't do the same things as we do. So, and this is where this, mm -hmm this it's very difficult for one for one restaurant to do something like this it, it's and that's why i commend them so greatly for doing it because they're sort of they're really out on their own there's it's very few places that end up doing this so um uh and but the more who end up doing it or change the the way the model is the more that we'll see the benefit because they'll have better employees and then happier customers and more sales at the end of the day for sure yeah, one one thing that I think is going to be really tough to change, just touching back on what we were talking about a little bit before, was um, that idea of of having people change their perspective on what what the restaurant industry is like. Because I think I think a big problem is that a good chunk of our society relies on like they want things fast and easy and less complicated and as cheap as possible, which is exactly why fast food chains are so popular. Like I think yep. like every time you drive by a McDonald's, especially in particular, like there's a lineup every single time, all day, yep. every day. Yep. And um that's just one one thing that I think is is gonna be tough for our society to change is because they just people rely on convenience and you think of things with like, even just like streaming right now with, with TV and stuff like that. Like everyone just wants 
something quick and easy and at their fingertips. And that's why like companies like skip the dishes and stuff like that have, have exploded, I think. And the pandemic yeah, just helped with that either. But yeah. and I and um, I totally I totally agree with you. I, I but I, that's why it's like it's, it has to be a culture. It has to be a cultural shift. Like totally. I'll give you a really good example of this. Is like people can buy GW jeans, GWG jeans for thirty five dollars, or they can pay two hundred and fifty dollars for Mavi jeans. It, it just depends on where you decide you want where where, where your um uh own ethics lie or your own um mm -hmm. what the, the things you want in your life what the things that you think of are important so if you if it's important for me to wear 250 pair of jeans i'm going to spend 250 dollars. if it's important right. to know where my food comes from and to know that the people who are making it and serving it are treated properly so i'm going to pay a little bit more as opposed to just eating at mcdonald's uh then then that's the, that's what you're going to do it's it, but it's it's changing this idea that by eating the people need to understand that by eating at McDonald's or eating cheap food, it, there's a whole plethora of problems that come, that come with that. And it's, it's, um, putting light onto that or, or letting people understand that or, or telling the stories of what it really means to eat cheap food. Um, mm -hmm. and until we do that, um, uh, it's not, it's not going to change. And I, this is another example I like to use because I, I'm a, an advocate for, for sustainably sourced seafood, people love this idea of shrimp. Uh, and they, they go to the smorgasbord or they go to the buffet and they just eat as many shrimp as they possibly can at the Chinese food place or whatever. But cheap, the only reason why we have cheap shrimp in this world is because of slave labor, like literally slave labor. Like, you, you know, the biggest thing in the, the U.S. they're talking about reparations for what happened for slavery 250 years ago. And people are up in arms about it, even here in Canada, even though it was, there was never slavery in Canada. But there's literally slavery going on today to get us cheap food. And that cheap food is found in Safeway. It's found at the, the grocery stores in all across Canada. And that's because mm -hmm. of slave labor. And people don't know this and people don't talk about it um, because they just want, want to keep cheap food coming into the country. And until we make a stand as a, or have this cultural shift that we need to understand where our food comes from and, and what it really means, um, there's still going to be slaves or child labor or, or think, or, and people are going to be treated poorly just so you can have a cheap Big Mac or a cheap, um, buffet, you know, things yeah. like that. Sea Spiracy, that, uh, documentary that came out on Netflix touches on that. Yes. Yeah, we do. That is, um, if you haven't seen it, it's very, very eye opening and very disturbing to be honest. So. Yeah, there's, but that's 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 just one aspect of that's just the seafood industry. Like there's, exactly, you know, you, you, there's so many different things. Like watch Food Inc. There's like there's so many great documentaries mm -hmm. out there talking about our food security and where our food comes from that people don't know about and should really know and understand. And it's we don't get taught that by our parents because they don't know it anymore. We don't get taught about it in school. Our great, our great grandparents and our grandparents knew about it because they were closer to agriculture because uh, they either grew up on a farm or they were, you know, mm -hmm. they, their parents grew up on a farm. But nowadays, since we have generations after generations living in cities, we don't have any idea where our food comes from. And right. it's super important to understand because we do it a minimum of three times a day at, at the very least. And <laughs> if we don't, uh, it's, it's why people are getting sick at younger ages, it's why cancer 
prevalent everywhere. It's, uh, yeah, it's something that people need to take more responsibility for in their own lives, but how, but they don't. How could someone go about taking more responsibility for that? Like if I go to the grocery store, um, there's no real easy way to tell where it comes from. Like I just go to the grocery no. store as an example and pick up apples. Yep. I don't know where they're from or how long they've been on a truck or a ship. Like how, how would I go about educating myself in a way that uh, wasn't like overwhelmingly complicated or is there well, a way this, yet? <laughs> yeah, there, there, no, no, no. There's, there's very, there's, it's very simple. Go to go, buy your gross, buy your vegetables and fruits and vegetables at a farmer's market. That's the easiest way. And the, and the way that everybody can make a change like tomorrow, like it's super simple that oh. way. Oh, nice. Is it, is it, it it's, it, if you know, if you're doing that, you're, you know, you're eating locally, you're eating in season and you're, you're doing a big part about keeping food security within the region that you're living in, which is massive. And if you're doing that, you're like way ahead of the curve. And that's just by going okay. to the farmer's market once a, week, that, a couple times a week. That's really easy and a really accessible uh, rule of thumb too, because even yes. farmers markets, like there's ones in Calgary that are held indoors. So you can find stuff that's in season in yep. those, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Usually at every major city that I know of in Canada has a farmer's market. It, it, if not year round, at least during the growing season of, for that particular region. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, then there's just other, there are buying directly from farmers. There's it's a, it's a little bit more work, but even, Going to a grocery chain like we have Overweighty here or Save on Foods here in BC. Um, there's you know there's grocery chains across Canada, but you can go to the to the produce manager and say you want more local food, and they will bring it in. They want to okay. sell it. Like hmm. all you have to do is okay. ask, uh, and they will you know, nine times out of ten they will bring it in for you if you're going to buy it. And hmm. the, you're going to be surprised hmm. that a, that, a, that what's crazy though is like you buy an apple from the Okanagan. And it's you know four ninety nine a pound, or you buy an apple from New Zealand and it's two ninety nine a pound, and you, you you're, you're scratching your head. And it's like, how is that even possible? And uh, you know, it's hard to make the right decision of, of buying that local apple when the government is sort of against you because they have some sort of economic trade deal that's like you know a, that's a foot thick that allows to, you know apples to be sold in Canada for two ninety nine when farmers are trying to grow them and make a living. Um, but you just do it the best you can and, and you, and you, and you, maybe you don't do it for, you don't buy local for every meal or you don't spend that extra money for every meal, but even, you know, once a week is, is, is a, is a start, right? Yeah. Taking small steps, like iterative small steps. That's how we make a change in the long run. And we've seen that exactly. repeat itself in multiple areas over history. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's and it starts at the groundswell. Like you do it as an, as an adult and then you teach your children that, and then they teach their children and, their friends do it. And, um, it, 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 if you're able to start, it, all you can control is, is yourself. And if you, if you make that change and you make that decision, then hopefully other people in your direct bubble will, will make that decision change to you know, hope anyway. One of the things I've been doing personally, just, uh, um, just as a side note is I've been, I've got actually just planted a vegetable garden and I'm really excited to eat fresh vegetables. Cause I grew up with fresh vegetables and, uh, yeah. it, uh, yeah, it's fun. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, making my own bread and stuff. But even like, th- I assume this problem goes into uh, other industries like ingredients. Like, where does flour come from? I I actually don't know. I just buy flour at Costco and then I make bread out of it or yeah. salt or that sort of thing. Like, how, how yeah, far does this problem yeah. 
perpetually. It, go, it goes as it, well. It goes as far as you want to take it. Like there are, I mean, you, there there are so many different levels you can take it to because food is such a vast thing, and there's so many different aspects of it. So you just sort of have to pick your battles, and you have to you have to do what's important to you, or, and and know that you can't change the world in a in a meal. It's it's but if you if you do a little bit every year, then it's, it's, uh, and you, and you encourage people to do a little bit every year, then it's going to be better for, mm-hmm. at the, in the long run for everybody. I mean, flour is a big one. It's, it's a commodity. Um, you know, beef is a big one. Um, buying meat is a big one. Um, we should eat, we should eat less meat and, and, uh, eat more vegetables and buy the higher quality of meat for, uh, and just eat it once a week as opposed to four, four or five times a week. Um, mm-hmm. and just buy, you know, really, really good steak. I love meat and I'm, and I've, you know, butchered hundreds of thousands of pounds of meat in my life. And, um, I'd rather, you know, eat a, one really great, you know, 85 day dry age ribeye than having hamburger five days a week. It just, totally uh, I, and, eat, and, eat, and I'd, I'd rather eat chickpeas and beans and, and vegetables. That's just how I am. And that's how I am as a chef. It's just like, I, that's how I'd rather, cause I know yeah. it's, it's all for me. It's all about the quality. Um, if you're just trying to, to fill a void, then you should just eat soil and cream. You know, how, how does, uh, how does hunting fit into the meat conversation in your opinion? Well, I think it's, I think it's unbelievable. I think it's great. I think that there's, uh, uh hunters are true conservationists and I think that they have, they, they do more for animal rights than, than anybody. Um, true. Like, like hunters and conference conservation officers, mm-hmm. if they're, if they're, if they're hunting for, food you know it's like they're going to actually eat it i don't I, i'm not a big fan of trophy hunting i don't think that's such a great idea but totally if, if you're going to you know kill a moose and you're going to fill your freezer and you're going to feed your family for a year that's fucking amazing i think that's great there's no better mm-hmm. food stuff out there than wild game and wild meat and, um you know it's there's it's the way we've are uh, you know uh, mm-hmm human existence has, has done that for 200,000 years. And I think this idea that we shouldn't be doing it is, uh, is kind of crazy. It goes against mm-hmm. all, right. you know, it goes against our DNA. I, I totally agree. And one of the biggest arguments to that, that I hear, because that's actually pretty much verbatim, my opinion on it as well. And I grew up a hunter. I've been hunting as long as I can remember. But, um, one of the biggest arguments I hear is that it's not a sustainable solution for the amount of meat for every person in North America. Well, like it goes to what I said is like, no, not every person can go and get a moose, but not everybody should be eating meat five days a week or seven days a week. Right. Like I said, we should be eating right. a lot more. Our protein sources should come more from a variety of vegetables and legumes and <clears throat> nuts and stuff. And, and meat should be a garnish and, or fish should be a garnish and, or something that's hmm. a celebratory meal as opposed to the everyday. Like I grew up, you know, Alberta, Northern Alberta, we had roast like fucking three times a week. It was crazy. We never. <laughs> and it was just because we, there was this plethora of cheap meat and we had money and we shouldn't, nobody should really eat like that. Like it's too much. Um, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's why. Uh, I, I mean, uh, something um, I want to say, if people want to educate themselves a little bit, um, a really good author out there, who's wrote a couple of really good books is Michael Pollan. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. If you've read some of his books, he has um, a book called the omnivores dilemma and cooked that all kind of talk about the importance of 
eating vegetables and having that as the main part of your diet and just talks about exactly what we're talking about. So if people want to educate themselves a little bit, that's also uh, an outlet they can choose. No, it's, he's great. And he did um, years of study. And once you, you know, sometimes books can be a bit uh, daunting for people to consume uh, to read. So I suggest getting it in a, in a uh, audio book or something like that, or start watching movies uh, or documentaries about it. Like I mentioned mm-hmm. food Inc. Michael Pollan is in food Inc. He's in it quite a bit. There's some farmers in there that have, and I, uh, there's one gentleman uh, and I, I can see his face, but I'm totally blanking on his name. He's written multitudes of books on sustainable farming practices and, and, uh, what it means to, to, um, is that uh, Joe Salatin. That's that's his name. Thank you, Joe Salatin. You're welcome. He's I was actually going to recommend yeah. a book by him also. <laughs> yeah, he's he's amazing. Yeah, and he, there's probably nobody more knowledgeable and more eloquent about talking about this this subject than than he than him. You know, he talks to talk and walks to walk. Yeah, that's yeah, a book <laughs> like, a long time ago. I don't remember the name of it, but it's on my bookshelf. But it's um. It was actually what inspired me to start moving towards having my own vegetable garden and uh, make sure that like, it kind of changed my perspective on why I hunt and it, it, all that sort of stuff was actually from Joel Salatin, mm. but I wrote his, read yeah. his book, like, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago. Yeah. He's a good, he's a good, he's, he's, it's a good, I've read a couple of his books and, but, and I've heard him on a bunch of podcasts and stuff. Uh, he's just so knowledgeable. And it, it, like I said, he, he really knows what he's doing. So, Yeah. Um, I wanted to touch back real quick before we move on about, um, Robert, your work with the chef's table society of BC, Um, but also before, before I ask that I came across, I just wanted to bring this up and it's kind of a little, uh, alluding to what we were talking about before. Um, I, I came across this tweet by Jerry D who is the host of Family Feud Canada, for those that don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't know. I, I didn't, and, I didn't um, know that either. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, he's just like a Canadian comedian. But he, he put a tweet out, and it was kind of randomly, I think he put this out, because um, Ontario just open, opened back up and their restaurants were going. Mm-hmm. But he, he said something that I think was... Um, I think a little bit like tongue in cheek and a little bit sarcastic, but also if you think about it, this is exactly what we should do. And he said, everyone should have to spend a week bartending, waitering, or cooking just to see how stressful it is. It might cut, cut down on the number of people who treat them like shit at restaurants and bars. Fact, the people who complain and run you around are the most, run you around the most are the worst tippers. That's very true. I thought that was, I thought that was hilarious, and I also thought like maybe part of our solution is just that the government should, if you're not in the restaurant industry, you should just have to do a week of work unpaid. (laughs) (laughs) I I love the idea. It's for people to understand to really understand what it's what it's all about. That would be great. Yeah, I mean, it would never happen. But I mean, no, no. I just thought that was kind of a a funny thing to bring up. Yeah, Um, good one. So. The the chef's table of society the chef's table society of BC. Are yep. you you were a vice president at one point? Is that what you currently so, are as well? No, I'm I'm uh, I was vice president and then president and now I'm what they call past president. I've been on the board. 
I've been, okay. been, been part of the chef's table for 13, 12 or 13 years now. Um, we're an okay. organization of chefs and cooks and uh, people outside of the industry um, who um, basically are trying to create open dialogue amongst our industry to try to make it a better play, better for everybody. Sort of what I'm talking about today and what the podcast mm-hmm. is about. And we, <clears throat> in the past, we've pre COVID, obviously we, we used to do a lot of events and raise awareness for local ingredients like spot prawns with a, a very famous event called the spot prawn festival that was been prevalent in Vancouver mm-hmm. for many years now. And, um, we all the money we raise, we give back to the community um, with bursaries and grants to culinary students to help them further education, um, or you know, do different different aspects of the of the um, different jobs within the culinary business. We've given, I think, we've given out over a hundred hundred thousand dollars in grants and bursaries to different students and stuff. Um, hmm. We've wow. we've done we've done a couple cookbooks um, as well. Um, the, the, our main focus and our main goal right now is there's two, there's two big things that we're trying to do. One is called cooks camp, which is a, this year it's going to be an online event because it was all sort of up in the air because of COVID. And it's, it's basically a, 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 um, a a conference for all people, uh, in the, in the industry, in the hospitality industry, trying to make the individual person a better person to then have that carry on to the to the restaurant and make the, the restaurant a better place to work. <clears throat> and that's by teaching people better management skills and teaching them better or other ways to become successful within the business. Um, mm-hmm. Not just about, you know, learning a new recipe about, but about how to actually run a business and to be a better person. And then the second, and so that's going to be an, uh, an online conference this, this September, September 15th. And then that's going to okay. go to a live two day event, which will happen next year 2022 um for uh and it's something that we tried to organize for last september but we were in the middle of COVID, so it never happened but we were well on our way to doing a, it was a 600 person um two-day conference on a farm in pemberton bc and having uh, you know different activations uh, as part of this conversation sorry uh, a part of this conference of things like uh, you know, doing yoga and Pilates in the morning to, you know, uh, social media, how to, how to become a better, better at social media to business development with Vikram Bidge and how to, oh, cool. how to, how to slaughter an animal and how to do, um, uh, how to, uh, taste and then blend wine and, uh, hmm. just all these different activations, um, knife sharpening, just tons of different things. And we're hopeful, uh, we are planning on doing That's this great. again next year um and this is all the reason why we're doing this is to raise money through sponsorship um to build an actual brick and mortar culinary library and reference center here in vancouver um cool. where it's uh an actual like book library and and a meeting place for everybody in the hospitality business and so we had so we can have this resource of you know finding recipes to uh, archiving, you know, uh, culinary achievements within Canada and British Columbia, archiving um, uh, indigenous ingredients, arch- archiving indigenous uh, recipes, um, hmm. and then and, and then having a, like a meeting place and uh, an event space. Wow, uh, that's that's the big dream. Um, we we made that our mandate a couple years ago, and 
it's something that we're slowly working towards every year. And uh, because of COVID, you know, it got kicked kicked to the curb a little bit, but we're, you know, we're, we're back plugging away at it. It's a big, it's a bunch of cooks basically trying to build a library and, you know, cooks barely read. <laughs> so it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a dichotomy, but you know, we're, we mm-hmm. want, we're just trying to make it better for everybody in our industry. And, and we thought having a, a, a gathering place and a, a place of, of knowledge made the most sense. Cause that's what really at the end of the day, that's what we're all about. I think that's uh, I think that's so cool. And like, we always talk about well, being in Canada and North America, it's kind of a melting pot. We talk about Italian food and we talk about Indian food and we talk about Chinese food and like all, all these different types of food or Asian food rather. And uh, having an archive of like indigenous food or, or Canadian food, like that's, I think mm-hmm. really phenomenal. What a great purpose. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it's, it's something that I, it started actually, I met uh, a chef, Rich Francis, who is an indigenous chef uh, from Ontario. And he, I met him at an event in Ontario, Toronto. And I asked him to, to be part of the, the cook's camp and do an indigenous dinner um, as one of the night's activations. Nice. And he was totally, totally into it. We were going to try to do like all wild foods uh, and indigenous recipes and his indigenous recipes and have other indigenous chefs uh, from around BC join him to to cook. Because, I mean, I've been, I've been mm. in Canada my whole life, obviously. I, and I, I don't know anything about indigenous food and it's really Me sad yeah, as, a, as a chef. <laughs> and, and there's this, it's unbelievably rich and full of obviously, you know, tens of thousands of years of heritage and they know the land and they, they know what, you know, different things do at different times of the year. And, um, to have, and there's very few places where this is written down, like because most of the, you know, indigenous history and knowledge is passed down from generation to generation through the elders. There's to actually have it as an archive place, have it in an archive, uh, that, that can be accessed by anybody at any time. Um, I thought totally. we think it's super important and, yeah. uh, we really, that we really hope to get it done. Um, you know, now more than ever, uh, you know, Indigenous people need to be respected uh, for Absolutely. for uh, so many reasons, um, and th- their culinary heritage is unbelievably rich, and uh, we need to we need to preserve it. You know, totally. And I, I'd love to see Indigenous restaurants start to pop up too, because I I'm very interested yes. in the food as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's there's yeah. one out here in Winnipeg that oh, I have, have yet to go to called Feast. Um, that's that's very well known here. That focuses exactly on that and so once we once we reopen here that's one of the first spots i want to go to it's yeah yeah mm-hmm. i think that's very very important and very cool what you're doing robert because like you said especially with with everything that's happening now with with canada and and the, the residential schools and and everything like that it's really important to bring awareness to that culture as much as we can well, I mean, mm-hmm. just like any culture, it, it it deserves an unbelievably vast amount of respect and it hasn't gotten any for a long time. And totally. what's happening now with the residential schools, Canada, it's so bizarre to me because Justin Trudeau, you know, I don't agree a lot with his politics, but he has no problem apologizing for things that happened a hundred years ago, but he has, he has no, he has, he just won't take responsibility for what's happening in with the residential schools mm-hmm. and somebody needs to. And then it, it's, it's, I mean, this is, uh, we're getting way off topic here, but it's a crime scene investigation. And if this was happening at a school in 
you know, at, at an elementary school in, in a suburb of Toronto or in Kitsilano here in, in Vancouver, we would have CSIS there. We would have RCMP through the roof, but yep. everybody's just, it's just like this, this side note of a story on, on the news. And, and mm-hmm. there's, there's some stuff on social media about it, but we're hearing nothing about it from the government. And it's absolutely ridiculous to me. It's, a, it's atrocious. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. That, that's, that's a whole, a that's a whole other podcast. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole other podcast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, on that note, let's um, bef- before we start wrapping up here, um, I'll I'll lighten it up a little bit here. Um, so Robert, we have to ask this at the to every one of our guests on that come onto the show, mm-hmm. um, and with you being a a chef of your caliber, I'm. I'm very, very interested. Very interested in your answer. Uh, um, so we, I think we all want to know how does Robert Belcham eat an Oreo? <laughs> you know what's funny about that is I ate some last night. Um, so it's fresh I, in your mind. <laughs> yeah, it's fresh in my mind. And 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 what I did because I ate more than one because you can't just eat one. Uh, oh, you yeah. take them apart. Possible. You take them apart and then you start stacking the icing on top of them so you can make it not just a double stuff but like a quadruple stuff Ooh. and then you dip it in milk and then you eat it because you got to dip it in milk like I, yeah. people who don't dip it in milk are sociopaths to me i just don't understand <laughs> eating so a dry do- oreo it doesn't make sense so what do you do with all the leftover wafers well you dip those in milk too okay. you just eat those after you eat those after uh, so or first someone, just, oh, uh, someone that says that's true that's what i would do i say i eat them first because uh i'm the type of person that eats my least favorite food on my dinner plate first and then my favorite right. food last right. so right. i'll do the same with oreos for sure save the quadruple stack yeah. for last i'm i'm a awesome. i'm an old fat i'm an old fat guy so like it's when i see that stack of icing i'm just like i'll eat it <laughs> <Don't stop. laughs> oh that's hilarious that's the uh, that's the first time we've heard that one i love that there's such a variety in the way to eat these like we haven't gotten the same answer twice have we no, not yet. I don't yeah, think. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Which is great. It is, yeah. and and we've been we've been continually trying to reach out to Oreo to sponsor our show. So <laughs> if, they're, if they're listening, that's a good Oreo. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wanted to ask too about um your company, uh, Laszlo and Saxon, which is yeah. um the all natural dog shampoo company that yep. you started um yep so i just My was partner. curious one yeah yeah where that where that idea came from and what's the future plans for that okay well, th- well thanks for asking it's 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 a total it's totally out of my wheelhouse and totally has nothing to do with food at, at all and it's uh <laughs> i've i have a couple other businesses that don't have anything to do with food too so um this uh my partner and i we got a dog three years ago now. And the dog became, we became obsessed with our dog. And, you know, I always cooked for my dog. Uh, I always made its food. Uh, His name is Dexter and he's the best thing ever. He's like this this little min pin slash poodle slash uh, craziness thing. And um, (laughs) we were trying to think of different, my partner and I were trying to think of different sort of projects that we could do together um, just for fun. And, and I'm an entrepreneur by heart and I love the, the being doing businesses and building businesses and stuff. And, mm-hmm. uh, she, she has a, a, a business of her own and 
we're like, why don't we do something in the, in the dog world since Dexter is such a huge part of our life. And she was like, mm-hmm. why don't we make food and try that? And, and the dog food market is saturated and, and it's, I wanted to try something out of dog food, out of doing food, something different. And, um, we started toying with this idea of, of a non-natural dog shampoo because we couldn't find one really on the market that, that um, wasn't full of shitty fragrance and, and, and weird chemicals and, and stuff. And because we, you know, we, we feed him a really good natural diet. We wanted to, if we were going to, when we're bathing him, we wanted the same thing. And it sort of snowballed from there. And, and we decided to make it. So it's a, 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 a we hired a chemist. Um, we, we had really good branding done. We had really great packaging made and we are the world's first all natural bespoke customizable dog shampoo. So every, every bottle of shampoo, you, when you go onto our website at Laszlo and just a little plug there. Um, you do a, you do a short survey about your dog. It's like is your dog's hair long or short. Does it have skin issues? Is it, and what's the age of your dog? questions like that. And then we take that data and then we actually make a custom shampoo for your dog, um, for its, for attributes, for the attributes that you, that you had spelled out in your survey. And we use, um, like the, the, the actual shampoo or soap itself is of the highest quality. It's better than most shampoos, human shampoos that you can buy on, on the, in the drugstore today. Um, we use it ourselves uh, for when we wash our own hair. And then we, um, we use, instead of fragrance, we use all natural um, uh, essential oils um, to, to, okay. to, to, to scent the product um, and to bring some holistic properties to it as well, but mainly for the, for, for scent. And um, it works really well and people are, are really digging it and loving it. And, we just launched in at the beginning of March and it's, it's a slow buildup. It's different than opening a restaurant. I'll tell you that. Um, and, uh, I know how to make shampoo now, which is kind of <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Love that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, Robert, you're obviously, you mentioned you're an, uh, entrepreneurial at heart and, uh, I'm, pretty similar. Like I, I like starting companies, but, uh, I've, I'm pretty early on in my entrepreneurial years Mm -hmm. so just as a total sidebar from this whole thing but uh um what what would you suggest to a budding entrepreneur and like how do you get past funding and how do you find good partners and like how do you like (laughs) right now like all my companies up till now have been service-based so that i've basically been limited by my hours which means that uh um I have to split my time between work. And if I want to start another company, I'm splitting my brain between two. So like finding yep. proper scaling and proper systems in order to build something to create a little more pacificity, pacificity, passiveness. So, so what, what would you suggest for, for me and other listeners that might be in the same boat? Uh, well, there's no, there's no easy answer when it comes to building a business. Uh, you know, I've built, I think I've opened like 12 restaurants and I have a, as crazy as sounds, I have a snow removal business. I have a, 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 an organic waste composting business. Um, I have, um, I have a dog shampoo business. Like, so there's no, there's no easy, there's no easy answer. It's, it's basically finding a need 
when you when you're looking for a business idea, you either copy somebody who's doing really well, and you, you either figure out a way to do it better, cheaper, and easier, or you find a niche that nobody's servicing, and it's one or the other. But the the, the main component for every one of those businesses is that it takes an unbelievable amount of hard work and tenacity to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, that's the number one thing. And, and usually mainly people in the food industry business that I've met, they have, they're full of tenacity and they're full of uh, where hard work is very easy for them. Um, and that's, that's where you become successful and it's, but it takes a long time. Um, you know, finding funding and finding uh, good business partners is incredibly difficult. Um, uh, you know, people's attitudes change every day and where money can come from can change on a daily basis. The more you can keep it, your own money and your, where you're in full control, the better, better off you will be. Okay. Um, yeah. but you know, at the end of the day, it's about, you want to build, a, you want to build a business that, uh, where you can make some money and do some good in the world. And, uh, yeah, it's just hard work. Uh, that's, that's it. I mean, I've had a lot of businesses that have uh, done really well and I've had a lot of businesses that have completely utterly failed. So mm-hmm. um, you can't be, you can't be deterred by the failure part of it. It's every decision you make is, is a, uh, it's a, it's about learning and totally. you hopefully won't make, ho- hopefully we'll make the same, same mistake twice, you know? For sure. So that was, that was pretty positive for me. I uh, like, like I said, I'm pretty, early on, like I've only been doing entrepreneurship, I guess for five or six years, but my first company was a, a, a landscaping company as well. And actually mm-hmm. the learning I got from that is that I closed it when I became overwhelmed instead of hiring a manager and I was just starting to get busy. And so that was a little bit unfortunate at the time, but again, you learn yep. from that. My most recent venture I'm most excited about, it's called Canadiana music and we're doing artist first production and recording. And we're trying to find funding from local uh-huh. businesses to fund like musicians product basically that's very that's very cool yeah we're very really cool. excited about that so that's this is my first time doing it with a business partner and uh right now we are just lacking in funding because it's fully self-funded by now but neither of us are working so it, it's kind of complicated right. at the moment yeah <laughs> that's tough that's tough yeah for sure uh that's a perfect segue into our final question i think of the day um so robert we also do an, a segment on our show called Here's What's Spinning, where we just talk about like upcoming music and album releases that we're really excited about because we're both um, hardcore music lovers. So uh, we just wanted to ask you as well, uh, what are some albums or artists that you're really into right now that you uh, think we should check out? Okay. Um, You know, you you were very nice enough to send a few of the questions ahead of time. So I, I... I love that question and I love that idea because music myself is it's a huge part of my life and always has been. It's a huge part of how I raised my son as well. Um, always listening to music and, and, and uh, always trying to find new stuff. And so I was just, I, I looked at the latest playlist I'd made, which was on June 2nd uh, on Apple music okay. and uh, Saskadelphia, the new tragically hip EP. It's, I think it's amazing because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, you know, it goes back to my favorite albums of the hip, uh, you know, up to here and Road Apples. Those were my favorite. So that's where the, the songs come from. And this is the first, that'd be the first one without Gord Downey too, right? Well, actually it has Gord. Yeah. It's the first album released without Gord, but he sings on all the songs because those songs were recorded oh, okay. when they were, rec- the songs were rec- they recorded oh, like 65 okay. songs for Road Apples and they only put 13 on. 
So there's all these extra songs that they just they found. Very yeah, it's cool. crazy. I'm gonna check that out too because I I love the hip also. <laughs> yeah, um, if you're Canadian. Then, it's kind yeah. of a it's kind of a mandatory thing. To, <laughs> yeah, to enjoy that. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And then there's a um, an album that I found last year that I that I put a bunch of songs onto this um, this playlist is by a gentleman by the name of Cedric Burnside, uh, and he's a blues artist out of the uh, Mississippi Hill Country. Uh, his dad is or his grandfather was a lot more famous, uh, R.L. Burnside, who was a bluesman who was very prolific and lots of great albums. But Cedric has taken, he used to play drum. He'd been playing drums in his grandfather's band since he was like 12. And he's unbelievably accomplished and he's taking blues to a new level. And it's super cool. Awesome. So, so definitely check out him. Love the blues. And, Perfect. Yeah. And um, um, what was the other one? Oh, just going back to old Iggy Pop. Like I love Iggy Pop. So, oh. so there's, there's three, you know. Iggy Pop's always good no matter what. So perfect. Yeah. yeah. Iggy Pop did one of my favorite albums of the year a, a few years ago called Post Pop Depression. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard that one or not. I have, and it's 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 awesome. It's it's awesome. It's weird. It's with um it's with uh Joshua Hame from Queens of Stone Age and yep. uh some members of the Arctic Monkeys as well. So if you haven't that was That's one of my favorite one. releases. One of the coolest things that Iggy does is he always finds really interesting people to collaborate with and, and they do, yeah. you know, he's always got such an interesting perspective on shit. Cause he's been, you know, such a prolific songwriter and performer for since the late sixties. And there's not a lot of people like that around, especially given the fact that he's been a drug addict since he was like 19. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. It's like, it's like a Keith Richards style, but way, hard, way more hardcore. You know? <laughs> totally. Uh, so before we do the closing, uh, Robert, was there anything that you uh, was like burning a hole in your mind that you just want to talk about or anything that we've missed or anything you want to uh, summarize for our listeners? No, or I don't plug. think so. I think we, yeah, well, I'm, I've already got the plug Laszlo and Saxon. Uh, if you're, if anybody's in Vancouver, please come and see us at Popina or Popina, Popina or Popina Cantina. Um, check out the, our podcast, my podcast, Mise en Place, uh, at the Chef's Table Society dot com uh, slash forward slash podcast we talk about a lot of different aspects of the hospitality business and you know this the season that we're on right now is it's basically how to make our our, our uh, hospitality business better uh, and giving people real world advice on how to make it better and, and do positive change and other than that just you know eat local and uh, enjoy time with each other that's at the end of the day that's all we can do cool couldn't have said it better myself um okay so that wraps up today's episode uh thank you everyone for tuning in and thank you again robert for jumping on and taking the time to join us today it's been my pleasure you guys are great and i can't wait to listen to more of the podcast thanks robert for sure and uh we'll be listening to uh mise en place as well um and so i just wanted to reiterate even though you just said it uh you can follow robert on instagram at robert belcham one and then look for his episodes of the mison plus podcast on any platform that you listen to and at chefstablesocietycom slash podcasts 
And for us, you can look for new episodes of our show every Thursday. Again, wherever you stream your podcasts and be sure to give us a like, comment, subscribe, rate, follow, and all of that good stuff. You can also reach us at adampilekylepodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions, concerns, or just more thoughts about what we discussed today. And to everyone out there, as restaurants begin to open, just please, when you're going out uh, this summer and beyond, tip your servers, tip the kitchen, uh, or actually maybe don't actually, because go to restaurants that don't have tipping. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Um, But just remember to be, be polite and, and keep in mind that everyone behind the scenes that's going into delivering your food and making your restaurant experience as good as possible, that they are working their fingers to the bone and they deserve every amount of respect and gratitude that you have. Uh, So thank you again, Robert Belcham, for joining us. And thanks for hanging out with us today. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Nice. Awesome. Hello, everyone. It's Kyle here. Thanks again for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed yourself. Please take a second to follow us on all of our social media. Links to our pages and any other material we talked about today are in the show notes below. Check back in next month for some additional conversation, laughs, and new music. And we wanted to give a big thank you to Adam's sister, Amanda Rishog, for designing our podcast cover image. She's a beautifully talented artist that has a tattoo shop here in Calgary called Living Prayer Tattoo. She specializes in fine line work, sacred geometry, and botanicals. Follow her online handle at Living Prayer Tattoo on Facebook and on Instagram, where you can find all of her work and booking information. And lastly, thanks again to Phoenix Song Productions for the continued technical and financial support, which helped make this podcast possible. See you next time.